Matthew's Gospel, 22, 41 and following. Will you bow with me in prayer? Almighty God and our Father in heaven, we ask that the Spirit of the Lord will exalt the Lord Jesus Christ through the preaching of his word, and that your people may be deepened in our understanding of who Jesus is and why it matters, and that those who are careless and who are lost and have not bowed the knee before Jesus may do so now before that day of judgment comes in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For we offer it, this prayer, in the name of the one and only mediator between God and men, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, beginning with verse 41. This is the word of God. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord... How is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. The call of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is to proclaim Jesus to the world in all of his uniqueness. The one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is no other Lord No other Savior but Jesus Christ. And Jesus presents himself as God incarnate. God who assumed human nature. If this were not so, then there could be no atonement on the cross. There could be no justification by grace through faith in him. And you and I are still lost and undone in our sins if Jesus Christ is not who he says He is. Now, we need doctrinal instruction. One of the old Scottish preachers, Thomas Boston, rightly observed, knowledge is a necessary foundation of faith and holiness. And where ignorance reigns in the mind, there is confusion in the heart and life. One of the reasons that there is such confusion in the hearts and lives of many who profess Jesus Christ is because we don't understand Christian doctrine as we should, and certainly that is true of the church in our day. Now, in the passage that we have just read together, Jesus, having silenced leaders who have asked him questions, turns the tables and he asks them a question, and he silences them. He wants them to acknowledge from the scriptures what the Bible says about the Messiah, and he is the Messiah. And so the first thing that we see as we come to this text this morning is that Jesus teaches his own deity. Jesus teaches, let me be plain, Jesus teaches that he is God. Who is the Christ? Verses 41 and 42. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. 
Who is the Christ? This is the fundamental issue. It was then, it is now. Who is the Christ? What is the Messiah's identity? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees answer, he's the son of David. Now this is right. And a myriad of Old Testament texts teach that the Messiah is the son of David. But Jesus wants to drive them deeper in their recognition of who the Messiah is. There's more. And so we pick it up at verse 43, and he said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit called him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Not from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So David called the Messiah his Lord. And he cites Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Now they would all have said that the Messiah was the son of David. And Jesus knows this. But he says that's not enough. Listen, David by prophetic inspiration in Psalm 110, identifies the Messiah. Whose son is he? He is the son of David, yes, but the Messiah is the divine Messiah, and he silences the Pharisees. Now let's be sure that we understand the significance of what Jesus is teaching in this passage. How can the Christ be merely David's son? When David himself, by divine inspiration, called the Messiah his Lord, seated on the right hand of God, that is, in the place of sovereign royal power. Lord, of course, is equivalent to Jehovah. And so in Psalm 110, David falls down and he worships the Messiah within his heart as he, by divine inspiration, is enabled to listen in to this intra-Trinitarian conversation between the members of the Trinity. And Jehovah is heard speaking to Adonai in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, and Jesus is saying, that's the Messiah, and I am he. Indeed, our catechism is so right when it summarizes the biblical teaching and says there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and in glory. That as we come to texts such as this one, you cannot avoid but must come to the conclusion that there is one God in three persons. There is no Christianity without the Trinity. There is no Christianity without the deity of Christ, without the confession that Jesus is God and Jesus teaches his own deity. Now, it doesn't take long to summarize what Jesus is doing in this passage. I want us to think, however, more broadly now through the New Testament. This passage invites us to investigate Christ's claims comprehensively and the claims of the New Testament specifically about who Jesus is. So the first thing that we have seen is that Jesus teaches his own deity. The second thing is specific references to the deity of Christ in the New Testament. Specific references, references that speak of Jesus as God in the New Testament itself. That's our second point. Now here I'm having to be very selective and I want you to take your Bibles. We're going to look at some passages in passing. Let's begin with the writings of John. 
John, beginning in John's Gospel, the first chapter. Now, I will not be able to go into depth with any of these passages, but we're going to look at them in passing. John chapter 1, verse 1, the great prologue to John's Gospel. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, what he says to us in this passage is that beginning cannot be predicated uh, predicated of the Logos. The Word, the Logos, had no beginning. He was. And yet he distinguishes him from God. There is God and there is the Word. But at the same time, he identifies the Word and God in terms of their being. Because the Word was God. Jesus then in this passage, and as we read on, we find it even more confirmed, is eternal, the self-existent Logos, distinguished from but also identical with God. One essence, one being, three persons. Now turn over to John chapter 5. In John 5, 17 through 31, we find that the Jews charge Jesus with Sabbath-breaking but with something even deeper than that. We read in verse 17 of John 5, But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now, does Jesus go on in this chapter and say, oh, no, no, you're all wrong about that and disabuse them of that idea? No, he does not. He goes on to confirm this in their hearing. His work is coordinated with the Father's work. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 21 that he has the divine authority of raising the dead. For as the Father raises the dead, he gives them life so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And he has divine authority to execute judgment. Look at verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And in verse 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And so Jesus acknowledges that what they think is true that he is claiming to be equal with God. He has the divine authority to raise the dead and the divine authority to execute judgment. Then we have the I am passages in John's gospel. We're only going to look at one, chapter 8 of John's gospel. Chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now that's most significant. He says to them in this passage, Abraham knew my day and was glad. Abraham could see that I was coming. He believed in me by trusting the promise he trusts in me and my coming. But you see... He says in verse 57, the Jews said to him, you are not even 50 years old and have seen, you have seen Abraham? Oh, Jesus says, not only have I seen Abraham, before Abraham was, I am. Now he has no predicate. He doesn't say, I am the door, I am the way. He says simply, I am. What is he doing? Jesus is saying, do you remember in Exodus chapter 3? 
how Jehovah spoke to Moses and he gave the divine name and out of the burning bush he spoke to Moses and he said, here is my name, I am is my name. Jesus is claiming that name for himself. Before Abraham was, I am, I am the self-existent God I have always been. He is professing deity. In the 12th chapter of John's Gospel, John chapter 12, And you understand you'll have to go back through these passages yourself. But in John 12, verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, and the antecedent to his is Jesus, Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. Now he's referencing here in the preceding verses the sixth chapter of Isaiah. What happens in the sixth chapter of Isaiah? In that chapter... Jehovah, sitting upon his throne, high and exalted, was seen in prophetic vision by Isaiah the prophet. John's gospel says, that's Jesus. That one seen by Isaiah the prophet in chapter 6 was Jesus. John chapter 20, leaving out so much, being selective, John chapter 20 Verse 28, Jesus Christ has been raised by God's power from the dead. One who doubts is Thomas. And Thomas says, unless I see in his hands and the mark of his nails and the place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And then we read in verse 27, Jesus says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve me, but believe. And Thomas answers him in verse 28, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't say, now let me correct you. I'm not God. No, no, he lets it stand because it's true. He is confessing his deity and all of John's gospel has driven to this point, this confession Who is Jesus? He is God. 1 John, the little epistle of 1 John. The last chapter of 1 John. Chapter 5, verse 20. First John 5, 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Could there be a more clear reference to the deity of Christ than in 1 John 5, 20? Well, what about the writings of Paul? Does Paul say that Jesus is God? Oh, absolutely. Turn to the book of Philippians, and let's look at a few passages in Paul's writings. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Now, Paul is saying, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, and he picks it up in Philippians 2, 6 by saying, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
which would be blasphemous were he not equal with God. But not only that, in verse 6 it says that he was in the form of God. Now the word form is used again in this passage in verse 7, the form of a servant. What does form mean? The word form in morphetheu, in the form of God, means the characteristic of a thing. It means the essence of a thing. It means, if you will, in this passage, his true divine nature. And so Paul in Philippians 2 is saying that Jesus Christ possesses the divine nature. He is God. In the little epistle of Titus, one of the pastoral epistles, Titus, chapter 2, verse 13. Titus 2.13. Please turn there. The Apostle Paul says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, a clear expression of the deity of Christ. Who is he? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And for some of you Greek students, this is confirmed by the Granville Sharp rule, which we won't take the time to look at this morning. By the way, in passing, Titus 2 is also referring to Isaiah 9-6, in which Jesus is called the mighty God. We'll turn now to the book of Romans, Romans the 10th chapter. All of you are familiar with this 10th chapter of the book of Romans. And how we are told, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. And he continues to refer to Jesus. And then in chapter 10, verse 13, he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What's significant about that? What is significant about that is that verse 13 is a quotation from the Old Testament prophet Joel, chapter 2, verse 32 which is a reference to Jehovah, and Paul applies it to Jesus. Romans chapter 9, verse 5. As he speaks of the great sorrow and increasing anguish in his heart for his people to come to know Christ, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 9, 5, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Who is Jesus? God over all, blessed forever. Unhappily, that's sometimes wrongly translated, but it's correct here in your ESV. Colossians, the first chapter. Colossians, chapter 1. Just noting verses 16 and 17, which refer to Jesus, the same person to whom he has been referring in verses 13 and 14 and 15. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's Jesus, the creator, the upholder of the universe. Turn over a chapter to Colossians 2 and look at verse 9. Colossians 2, verse 9. For in him, and the reference is to Christ, moving along from the preceding verse, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
Again, the clearest expression of the deity of Jesus Christ. In him, the deity, the Godhead, dwells bodily. Well, what about the general epistles? Let's look at a few passages. The book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 3. Hebrews 1.3. All of this could be unpacked so beautifully had we time, but Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance, this is speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Same chapter, Hebrews 1, look at verse 8. But of the Son, you see, of Jesus, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Verse 8 applies Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, which refers to Jehovah directly to Jesus Christ. Verse 6 of this chapter. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The angels worship Jesus. Verses 10 through 12 of this chapter. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed but you are the same in your years have no end. An application of Psalm 102, verses 24 through 27, referencing the immutability of Jehovah and applying it directly to Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, as I've said to you, these are selective references. We could readily multiply them. And it's an unusual thing in a Sunday morning sermon that I take the time to go through these sorts of things. But my friends, you need to know these passages. You need to be familiar with these passages. You need to know that the New Testament, in explicit terms, says that Jesus is God. These are the sorts of passages when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door, I take them to one after another. They reject them all, but there it is all the same. There it is. This is who Jesus is. So we've seen in Matthew 22 that Jesus speaks of his own deity. We have seen that the New Testament explicitly calls Jesus God. Now, the third thing I want to say is that the title Lord is indicative of the deity of Christ. The title Lord. How often you see the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. You see, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, translated Jehovah by the word kurios, which is Lord. Jesus is Lord in the New Testament means Jesus is Jehovah. One example of that, in Philippians chapter 2, the passage to which we turned a moment ago. The Apostle Paul, having spoken of the humiliation of the Son, this one in the form of God who took the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, 
now speaks of his exaltation in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why do I say this is significant? Because this, this that we have just read is a direct application to Jesus of what is applied to Jehovah in Isaiah 45, verses 20 through 25. And it would be blasphemous for the exalted mediator now to assume the name Lord. Jehovah did it not rightly belong to him as one in essence with the Father. The title Lord indicates the deity of Christ. Fourthly, the attributes of God are ascribed to Jesus in the New Testament. Have you ever noticed that? Let me mention them. God is eternal. What does the New Testament say of Jesus? John 1-2, he was in the beginning with God. John 8-58, before Abraham was, I am. And the references could be multiplied. Jesus is eternal. God is immutable, that is, he is unchangeable. What does the Bible say of Jesus in his essence? Hebrews 1, 11 and 12 applies Psalm 102 to Christ. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Later, Hebrews says, Jesus Christ the same today, yesterday, and forever. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere present. But what does the New Testament say of Jesus? Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. He claims universal lordship and universal presence throughout space and time. Jehovah is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. What does the New Testament say of Jesus? Hebrews 1.3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so the scriptures tell us that God is eternal, that God is immutable, that God is omnipresent, that God is omnipotent, and all of those attributes are ascribed to Jesus Christ, indicating his deity. The fifth thing I want you to see is that divine prerogatives belong to Christ. Who alone can forgive sins? God. But Jesus forgives sins. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, as you have this one who was let down through the roof for healing, the Lord Jesus Christ sees that his deeper need is not healing but forgiveness of his sins, and he says, My son, your sins are forgiven. And the Jews who hear him speak a word of forgiveness recognize the issue. Who can forgive sins but God? He forgives sins because he is God. God alone can forgive sins. Jesus forgives sins. Prayer is offered to Jesus many, many times in the New Testament. Just think of Stephen in Acts 7.59 as he is being martyred and he looks into the face of Jesus Christ standing to receive him and he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
prayer is offered to Jesus, which would be blasphemous were he not God. Jesus is worshipped in the New Testament. For example, in Matthew 28, 17, after the resurrection, before the ascension, he meets with his disciples, and it says, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. 2 Timothy 4.18, speaking of of Jesus, says, To him be glory forever and ever. Jesus is worshipped in the New Testament. And it would be blasphemous for us to gather here on a Sunday morning and sing hymns of praise to Jesus, fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of the nations, were he not God. Who is the only Savior? Jehovah is the only Savior, but who is the Savior? Jesus is the Savior. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. But Isaiah 43, 11 says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. And yet the New Testament says, Jesus is the Savior. Who is the Creator? God is the Creator, is He not? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But what does the New Testament teach us? It teaches us in John 1, in Hebrews 1, in Colossians 1, that all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that has been made. Jesus is the creator. Who is the judge of all men? It is God. It is Jehovah who is the God of all men. Genesis 18.5 tells us, that the Lord is the judge of all the earth. Think of all of the Psalms that speak of Jehovah as the judge of all the earth. And yet when we come to John 5, 2 Corinthians 5, Revelation 20, and other passages, we find that judgment is ascribed to Jesus. Do you begin to see the significance of this? That the New Testament teaches us that Jesus forgives sins, that prayer is offered to Jesus, that Jesus is worshipped, that Jesus is the Savior, that Jesus is the Creator, that Jesus is the Judge. And all of these are divine prerogatives. Have you ever noticed in Mark's Gospel, chapters 4 through 6, that Jesus performs the things that are ascribed to Jehovah in Psalm 107? So that what Mark is doing is, in the back of his mind, working with Psalm 107. What happens in that psalm? In that psalm, Jehovah stills the waves, raises the dead, feeds the hungry in the desert, delivers his disciples from terror. These are Jehovah's deliverances. But what happens in Mark's gospel? Jesus stills the waves, raises the dead, feeds the hungry in the desert, delivers his disciples from terror, identifying him with Jehovah in Psalm 107. Have you ever thought about the fact that in Isaiah 40, we have this promise that there would be a prophet who would come, who would make straight a highway for our God? And yet we find John the Baptist proclaiming that he is the one making straight the highway for our God, and he's speaking of Jesus? And have you ever thought of this? That Jesus' deity is integral integral to the divine Trinitarian name. What do I mean? I mean this. In Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, and he says to his church, go into the world, all the world, and preach the gospel... Disciple the nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Have you ever looked at that name? Notice, first of all, that the definite articles are there. You've never heard me baptize and say, in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You hear me say, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Because the definite articles are there to distinguish the persons of the Trinity. But notice also that it does not say, in the names of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It says you baptize them in the name. There's one name, not three. Name means character, it means being, it means essence. There is one God in three persons. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, which teaches us that Jesus Christ is God. Now I know this is unusual for a Sunday morning. It's rare that we take the time to look at all of these passages on a Sunday morning as we might, for example, in a class. But my friend... Can you think of anything more important for you to know and know from the Bible than that Jesus is God? That he is Jehovah? And we have seen that there's a specific reference to Christ's deity in John's writings, in Paul's writings, in the general epistles. We have seen that that the title Lord means that Jesus is God. We have seen that the attributes of God are ascribed to Jesus. And we have seen that divine prerogatives such as the forgiveness of sins and judgment are ascribed to Jesus. And that behind it all, Jesus teaches his own deity. Now, we come to the sixth point. There are stupendous implications of this. And we need to think through just a few. Believe me, the list could be readily multiplied. The first implication is this. That Jesus Christ as God defines the incarnation. Jesus is God in Jewish flesh. God who assumed human nature. He did not despise the virgin's womb. And here, I hope you're moved from the depths of your soul to consider is the greatest mystery that God himself, the second person of the Trinity, would assume human nature, would become what he was not without ceasing to be, who he had always been. Explain that. And this is why the cross is effective. As Pastor McDonald prayed this morning, his infinite nature gave to his finite sufferings infinite value. Were Jesus not God, going to the cross would not have been effective. But because he is God who assumed human nature when he died on a cross, his infinite nature gave to his finite sufferings infinite value. What does that mean for you, believer? It means this, that because he is God who assumed human flesh when he went to the cross, He could bear the equivalent of your eternal hell and he could quench its flames. That you're saved because he is the God-man. Were he not God, assuming human nature, you would be lost in hell forever. 
This is because of the perfect union of Christ's deity and humanity. Now take your hymnal and turn to page 853. 853. You'll find here the Westminster Confession of Faith, a greater confession, a greater theological document, has never been penned by the hand of man that is not, not divinely inspired. And you will find the best, the most perfect wording of this issue in paragraph 2 of chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator. Paragraph 2 puts it this way. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, Yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Two natures, God and man, perfectly united in one person, without confusion, without conversion. Deity is not converted into humanity. Humanity is not converted into deity. They are not confused. There is a perfect union. In one person of deity and humanity. And what we are teaching our children every December, when they run to the Christmas tree and open their packages and you read to them from Luke's gospel, is that this is what Christmas is all about. He is God who came into this world and assumed human nature to obey the law that you broke and to die on a cross and pay the penalty, and were he not God, he could not have done it. That's the first implication. The second implication is for the unbeliever who may be here today. My unbelieving friend, Jesus is represented in the New Testament as the object of faith. The New Testament doesn't say believe as Jesus believed. The New Testament says believe in Christ. And if Jesus is not who he says he is, you have a huge historical problem. Have you ever thought about it? Well, what is that problem, Pastor? Here it is. Paul, Peter, James, all believe. Paul, the Pharisee, all of these were Jewish monotheists, committed Jewish monotheists. All of them believed that Jesus was God. How did that happen? What is the explanation for that? Men have tried to explain it. All explanations have failed, but the biblical explanation, they believed it because it was true. Because Jesus is God. He claimed to be God, and he proved it by his resurrection from the dead. You have a huge historical problem if you do not believe in Jesus. You have another problem. Because many a believer, many an unbeliever, will say, 
yeah, I don't believe all of this. I don't believe the Trinity. I don't believe Jesus is God. I don't believe any of that. But I will acknowledge that Jesus was a really good man, and he's taught a lot of good things. My friend, maybe you think that Jesus was a good man, but he was not God. But if he claimed to be God, and he wasn't, he was not a good man. He was one or the other. You can't have it both ways. Either he is who he claims himself to be, he is God, and you should bow the knee before him and trust in him for your salvation, or he's not a good man. None of this, Jesus is a good man who taught good things. He had no authority so to do, were he not who he claimed to be. As B.B. Warfield rightly wrote, At bottom, however, disbelief, when it works itself out, must not merely neglect Jesus, but condemn him. And the ravings of Anishi may serve to keep us in mind that the ultimate alternative is always that of the Pharisees and scribes. Either Jesus has come forth from God, or we can scarcely avoid declaring him possessed of the evil one. He makes or mars the world. But none of this in-between nonsense. You have another problem, unbeliever. Because if Jesus is who he claims he is, and he is, and you've not bowed the knee before him, I hope that you see that this Jesus is far greater than than the Jesus that you've had in your mind thus far. He's not just a moral teacher. He's God who came to save sinners. And if you do not bow before him, you can't be neutral. If you do not bow before him, you reject him. In your need of a savior, you reject all hope. There is no other. And so the question that continues to echo down through time is the question of Matthew 22. What do you think about the Christ whose son is he? And then, people of God, there's an application that I want to make to your Christian living because of the deity of Christ. Let me do that in two ways. Remember back in Philippians 2, we read that he was in the form of God, assumed the form of a servant, and the Apostle Paul says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. How can I fail to continually pour contempt on all my pride When God, the creator of the universe, came into this world and humbled himself to save me from my sins. Where are those areas in your life and in mine in which we are proud and arrogant and we must humble ourselves before him and others and learn what it means to be Christ-like because he has saved us and redeemed us? Or to put it another way, as Milne said, If Jesus Christ shares in the nature of God, we are called upon to worship him without cessation, obey him without hesitation, love him without reservation, and serve him without interruption. If Jesus is who he claims he is, then we are to worship him without cessation, obey him without hesitation, love him without reservation, and serve him without interruption. And so all of this says to you and me as believers in Jesus, 
the answer to the question, what does Christ deserve? What does Jesus deserve from your life and from mine? What does he deserve from your life and mine that he's not yet received, that he's not getting from you and from me? What does he deserve? After concluding my work on this passage, I went and listened to a lecture by our friend John Blanchard on the deity of Christ. I was so pleased to see that we tracked in the same way. Dr. Blanchard concluded with an account that I think answers the question, what does Christ deserve? There was a dying man, a dying Christian, and on his deathbed, in his weakness, the only word that he seemed to be able to get out was the word bring. 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 Well, the caretakers came round him and said, do you want us to bring water? so that we can moisten your dry lips as you die? No. Bring. Do you want us to bring medicine so that the medicine will help to to curb the pain as you're dying? No. Bring. Do Do you want us to bring the Bible so that we can read the Bible for your comfort as you're dying? No. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. 